Mimi Hall, Michelle Lowry, and Dallin Forrest waited on the front lawn of Travis's home. Inside was their friend who was stabbed, shot, and his throat was slit, left to rot in the bottom of his master shower. When police arrived and asked those friends and his roommates, Zachary and Enrique, what they wanted to know was, was Travis depressed? Was he going through something? Anything? But one look at the body and the questions changed. Did Travis have any enemies and only one name was said by everyone? Jody Arias. The foul smell permeating from his bedroom was noticed by his roommates, but it seemed they did little to figure out where and why the smell was there. Many have said that the smell of death is something that you will never forget, and it's something that you recognize even if you've never smelt it before. His two roommates never questioned where Travis was. For what they knew, the owner of the home was gone on another of one of his trips. His car was parked in the garage. The bar stools were stacked on the couch. His tour only half finished. But the thing that threw me when Detective Esteban Flores ordered his men out after seeing the master bedroom, they exited through the laundry room and there on the washer was a now brown colored smudge noticed by no one in the home. The brown smudge would lead Detective Flores straight to what he would need in order to solve this case. And if that didn't help, then many people close to Travis who now littered the lawn would tell him the name of Travis's killer. The woman who wanted him more than anything, but was never going to get him. Jody. Welcome to the True Crime Librarian. I'm your librarian and host, Ashley. Tonight, we close out the case of Travis and Jody. The world watched as the ultimate crime of passion played out in the courtroom. A vicious prosecutor and a defense attorney who looked for each and every single angle to get away from his defendant were sharing the spotlight with the accused leading the way. Jody was adamant to sell her story. An abusive man was killed after his battering ram had had enough and decided to fight back. Those who were close to Travis learned that their friend had another side to him, one he hid so well and only would let out with Jody. Audio played of a conversation that was recorded without Travis's knowing, and the innocent-looking defendant became a temptress whose sexual spell over Travis was so strong he abandoned his faith to have a taste of the forbidden fruit. Warning, this episode contains graphic detail of adult situations, murder, and adult language. Listeners' discretion is advised. If you feel any of this may be too much for you, please skip this episode or have someone listen with you or for you. Good evening, all of my true crime nerds. I have a little bit of house cleaning tonight as it is Mother's Day and the last thing we want to do as a mother is clean. So don't forget to head over to the merch store and claim that 10% off at TTCL10 to get 10% off of your order through the merch store. The promotion ends tomorrow, May 10th at midnight. This is the perfect time to snag that design of the month or any other gear in the merch store. Don't forget to follow me on social media so that you never miss a case or an upload. 
And if you are tuning in on YouTube, remember to hit that like and subscribe button. Don't forget to ring that notification bell so you never miss an upload. Last, let's spread a little true crime nerd love to all of my true crime nerd moms out there. I hope you were all spooled rotten for Mother's Day and did very little close to nothing. Enough of this. Let's get to why you all came here for the true crime. Okay, last week we left off at the 911 call from Mimi Hall after finding out that no one had heard from Travis in several days. Mesa PD is on scene and Detective Esteban Flores is with the Mesa PD and he is starting to see this this isn't what we thought it was okay so after he figures out that this is not a suicide this was a homicide he orders his entire crew out anybody with the PD or that lived there everybody has to get out I need a warrant and he files he calls the office and says Give me a warrant. I need a warrant to this house so he can start looking at this crime scene. He posts some police out front and he's like, nobody is to cross these thresholds. None at all. Well, on the way out, he sees there's a brown mark on the washer and it sticks in the back of his mind. But first, he really wanted to walk that crime scene, have a really good look at it. Listen to the story that it had to tell him. Blood flooded the carpet in the master bedroom. From the looks of it, this would be where the fatal blow occurred, which we know now, hindsight, was the cutting of his neck. However, that's not clear just yet as you look at his body laying in the floor of the shower. Well, then you follow the blood trail back into the small hall that goes from the master bedroom into the master bath, and the master closet is off of that. It is splattered. There's smears down the, the wall, down the, the baseboards. You can tell something has been drugged through this area. And you're looking at that. But here's the thing. Looking at those smears, you're thinking, I wonder if we can pull partial print. What was later identified in some of these smears would just confirm everybody's suspicion later on. Well, you get into the master bathroom. There's water all over the tile flooring. Whoever did this to Travis, whoever caused this amount of harm, was trying at the very least to dilute the blood and hopefully make any kind of testing of it impossible. At the very most, they were trying to clean up and realize this is a bigger job than I'm signing up for and I don't have time. In the bathroom, splattered along the walls, along the mirrors, underneath the damn toilet seat, they find blood. In the middle of all of that, they find a small caliber shell casing, and immediately, you've got crime scene going, hey, was he shot? You can't tell by looking at Travis what his injuries were. You could see there was extensive injuries. You could see that. You, I mean, it didn't take a scientist. However, five days laying in that, you've got appendages that are starting to mummify. You've got the skin pulling away from the muscle causing what is known as slippage, which we talked about that with the Chris Watts case and the girls. You have gray coloring of his skin, but and at the same time, you have this really grotesque, purpley, grape-colored lividity on the underside. And then you have what's called purge. 
And purge is not something I hear talked about very much in, in any true crime, really, because it's very rare that we stumble on a crime on a murder like this one in this time frame. Purge is a black, very foul-smelling liquid that starts to seep out of orifices of the body along with wounds. So Travis is covered in this purge, and the purge is consistent of his internal organs breaking down. So was he shot? Quite possibly, but just at, at glance, I have no idea. The caliber of this bullet was either to fit a 22 or possibly even a 32. All of this is going to later indicate to the, to the medical examiner what kind of injuries and what Travis went through in his final moments. With his body still being in the bottom of the shower, we've got crime scene techs. They're taking, sh they're taking photos from every single angle, which is very difficult to do without disturbing where he's at because he is taking up 90% of the floor. If you have a weak stomach, I discourage you from getting on the internet and googling what he looked like. But if you're just that damn curious, you can find it and it won't take you two seconds. You're gonna see, you're gonna see what happens to a body when it starts to decompose and you don't have the embalming and the preparations made um, following the death of a person to prepare them for burial and to keep this from happening. They say that Travis's death was so slow and excruciatingly painful as he had suffered three wounds that could have been marked as fatal. We have the slitting of his throat it was so deep that it scraped the vertebrae in the back of his neck. He had a stab wound to his, to his chest that nicked his superior vena cava, which is the vessel that takes deoxygenated blood to the heart. And then it also nicked his heart itself. And then the gunshot wound. It tore through his frontal lobe and landed in his left cheek. Had it not been an immediate fatal blow, he would have laid there and suffered until he did die. What is all of this telling us? What, why am I talking about all this gruesome things, right? What are we, why? All of this tells us when Travis died. We can apply math. We know the rate at which the body has to set for certain things to start occurring. It is consistently and I mean it is constantly researched I mean you if you want to you you're eligible to turn your body over for science and one of the things they will do is they will lay you in different environments and they will watch you decompose just to see what happens and how long it takes so that's how this all comes to play and why we talk about things like this not only are we trying to figure out what the victim went through, we're trying to figure out when they went through this and who does it put that has the most opportunity to be there during the time of the murder. So all of this plays this big list, this story that I told you that Detective Flores is trying to figure out from what he is seeing.
I do want to point out, and I want to be made perfectly clear, no person deserves what Travis went through. He had the fight of his life, and he was at immediate disadvantage of winning from the moment his attack started. There's nothing about Travis or that Travis had done that would justify his death in this manner. I'm not his judge, nor am I his executioner. Whatever sins he transgressed during this life was between him and his maker. Do I have to agree with them? No. Do I have to like them? No. Did they go against his faith? Yes. But I'm not a scholar in the Mormon faith, so in my eyes, every one of these sins he committed, he could have received forgiveness for. I believe that his relationship with Jody was toxic for the both of them. Almost from the moment that he introduced himself to her in Las Vegas, they, they just were a toxic mix. These two could be at different points today had their paths never crossed. As much debasing that he did to Jody, she was capable of dishing it right back. The only difference is she had a history of mental issues and many, many people spoke about them but never did anything to help her. And these were all prior to Travis coming into her life. So the words and the names he's calling her, it affected her far differently than her words were affecting him. He had a very bright social circle. He was loved by his family. He had a faith that guided him through some very dark times. Travis was not teetering on a mental illness when he met Jody. Jody was. She had been cheated on multiple times. She had horrible relationship in, of the past with men and females. She didn't even, she claims that she has friends, but none of them were close friends. She she latched on to Travis's friends and hoping one of them would become close so she could have that connection. There's several issues with Jody's past that makes those things that Travis called her, whether it was in light or not, very harmful. And I'm not saying he is a bad person. And he didn't realize what kind of bear he was poking when he was doing it. For him, it was entertainment because it brought satisfaction later, if not instant. But for Jody, those little things just ate away at her in the back of her mind. And the reason I have spoke about Travis's actions to, towards her is they are like a consistent pressing of her crazy button. They're just like crazy, crazy, crazy until we hit that jackpot and she becomes full-blown psychotic, right? I mean, does that make what he said, what he did wrong? No, not really. But it does play a major role in, in where she went in the future from them meeting. So, you know, mm, neither one of these people were capable of quitting the other one. They couldn't sever those ties to one another. They were so addicted to each other. And guess what? Betty Ford doesn't offer a program strong enough to help either one beat that kind of addiction. This was just wrong from the get-go. It just was. But it doesn't make what Travis said or did worth losing his life in the manner he did. So I just want to make sure that that is perfectly clear. Um, I am not on Team Jody, nor am I on Team Travis. 
I'm right down the middle. They both played a part in this. And he was the unfortunate one to lose his life. Detective Flores didn't forget the small brown stain on the washer. But before he could get over there and see what that washer had to offer him, dispatch was calling. They were relaying a message that he was going to find extremely interesting. The caller was the very person whose name he was beginning to become very familiar with, Jody. And he called and he told her, you know, I got a message from one of my patrol officers that you need to talk to me about something. And Jody says, well, I, I just, I want to offer my assistance. I was really good friends with Travis and I, I don't really know a whole lot of anything. And so Flores is like, mm, let's see what you've heard. Because if she can tell us something that nobody else really knew, we may have ourselves the murderer, right? So we ask her, you know, what have you heard so far? Anything, anything that could be like, mm, yeah, I know I, you were there. And she says, you know, all I heard was that he's passed away. I, I heard all kinds of rumors that there was a lot of blood. I heard that a roommate found him and people were, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm upset. I hear nobody has been able to get a hold of him for a week. She goes on and on about their dating history, turned friends with benefits. And she says, you know, even though we broke up, we're no longer boyfriend-girlfriend. We decided to remain friends. Detective Flores is like, oh, so you guys are, we're not like romantically together? And Jody's like, no, we were intimate, but I wouldn't say romantic as far as relationship goes. And this is telling Flores a lot of information, even though she seems to be avoiding the elephant in the room kind of thing. And she tells you, she tells Flores, you know, the last time I spoke with Travis was on June 3rd, around 11 o'clock that evening. Well, that's just 24 hours, little, little bit more than 12 hours, 18 hours before his murder. And she's saying that she talked to him. Well, this perks up his curiosity even more. And she, and he's like, well, you know, when's the last time you saw each other? She's like, oh, it was in early April, you know, when I finally was able to you know, move away from Mesa and back to California because I just, I wasn't financially stable there. And then blames start flying out of her mouth. And she's like, hey, did you know that he had his tire slashed and he never kept his doors locked? And, you know, I told him he needs to lock his doors and he's like, you're not my mom, you know. But don't forget, he was getting in shape in preparation for this trip to Cancun, so he was really strong. And I really can't understand how anyone would be able to overpower him. This conversation between De Detective Flores and Jody does not go undocumented, and he holds on to that as well, kind of like he did with this little brown stain that he's ready to get back to. And before, you know, he can go pour himself over an autopsy and eventually the crime scene photos once those are developed, we need to look at this washer. Well, inside the dryer, there was the bed linen that was missing from the bed in Travis's master bedroom. In the washer was some of Travis's clothing, including towels, sweats, t-shirts, his Mormon undergarments, and the camera that they seemed to not be able to locate, even though they had a box indicating it had been recently purchased. It had been ran through a cycle in the washer. 
So water damage was apparent. But when he flipped open that little slat on the side that tells you, you know, there's a memory card or not, guess what's inside? The memory card. And we like to think that if you destroy it and we can't just insert it into a device and it pop up and we we're like, oh, nobody's going to be able to recover those things, right? Wrong. Water damage is not definitive. Just FYI. He calls over some people from his crime scene and he's like I need you to take a look at this camera and I want to know what's on the camera and I want to know what's on that memory card because whatever's on that somebody didn't want us to know on June 13th of 2008 Norma or Mumum, Travis's grandmother she was sent 20 white irises the sender none other than Jody Arias the meaning well Apparently, Travis had told her that if he had a girl once he had a wife and began a family, he wanted to name her Iris. On the card, Jody wrote, Mum Mum, that if she has a son, she will name him Alexander. Why, is, why are we talking about this, right? Every, every investigation, every time we look at true crime, every time we look at fictional crime, anytime you pick up a, a book of a thriller all of them come back and say the same things the killer likes to insert themselves into the investigation they want to know what is being found out where cops are looking are they looking in their direction if so i need to get my crap together and get the hell out of dodge because i don't really want to go to jail for murder right well I cannot find anything that supports that Jody ever really met Mama. So her sending her flowers following the death of Travis, a little weird, right? Means you had to do a little bit of digging to figure out where to send those flowers to. The other thing, you, you know, pro professing this, I'm going to name my son Alexander thing. No, this is not good. All it's doing is pointing to us that Jody is becoming more and more and more mentally unstable as this goes on. In the days following finding Travis's body, Jody is caught this curiosity bug and it's really eaten away at her. She begins calling everyone she knew asking about Travis's murder. This is mentioned time and time again to investigators. And we watch those inserting themselves into investigations, showing up at crime scenes, putting on a show at a funeral, those continuously looking to see where the police are and what they know. Well, here we have Jody showing a serious lack of control, calling everybody she knows, including his bishop. Yeah. And she asked the bishop, you know, what do you know about the investigation? What's going on? And of course the bishop's like, oh, I can't, I don't know because they're not telling me. And she, you know, she mentions to the bishop that she thinks that she, you know, she should tell Mimi who she thinks is dating Travis about her and Travis's relationship in the bedroom. And the bishop tells her, you know, there's there that's not necessary that's not necessary Mimi first of all Mimi was not interested in Travis in the way that he was interested in her 
And even though you're confessing to me that you broke the law of chastity, which, by the way, we will address that here in a second, it's not going to do her any good to know that information now. Mimi just found out that her friend was dead. And this girl, this ex-girlfriend is going to come to her and go, oh, hey, by the way, I'm still screwing Travis. I'm sorry. No. What? I mean, of course his bishop is going to advise against this. No good can come of that. Only thing coming from that is Jody's looking to hurt Mimi even more. All of this that Jody is doing at this point is only furthering the cause for suspicion of Jody and her involvement with Travis's murder. And in case you haven't caught on to what she's really most concerned about is that her name is being mentioned over and over to police and about her possible involvement. Well, even Sandra, Jody's mother, comes to her and questions her. And she, you know, she knows that her daughter has mental issues. She has either chose to ignore them or they just didn't have the means to get her the help. But from what it sounds like to me, these were never addressed. She was warned that her daughter may have issues. She herself saw her daughter go through some rebellious things in her early years and these were just overlooked it seems like in her family but her her mother goes to her and, and she says you know Jody did did you go to Arizona and Jody's like I was nowhere near Arizona I have gas receipts and everything to prove it well yes you do but you also have 15 gallons worth of gas cans in the back of your car that would provide you with how many additional miles without having to stop and actually purchase gas with cash or credit card. Now, to me, that's going to get you a hell of a long ways through areas that you are not going to be documented in being in, right? Well, Mesa, Arizona, their PD receives a tip following the finding Travis dead. An anonymous tip comes through their tip line and it's, if had it caught any traction, it could have made this entire gay case play out differently. Um, but as they started digging into it, there was no validity there. So the, the tip was the police need to investigate a person named Dustin Thompson. This tip, although anonymous at the time, was later discovered it came from his wife, Ashley Thompson. The two had been separated at this point, and Ashley, Dustin, and Travis had all been friends. Following Dustin and Ashley's separation, there was a half-hearted talk between Travis and Ashley about them two possibly getting together and being a couple. But the more that both of them thought about this, the more it was like, you know, I'm not sure if I really want to risk our friendship and do something like this so maybe maybe just remain friends that's all that ever came of it however ashley in her mind she felt like that on the day that they found travis dead and the days following dustin kind of acted a little bit weird but it didn't take more than a couple days after her calling in her suspicions that she no longer suspected him of anything and everything played out. There was nothing that Dustin was hiding. He, I don't even think he was really aware that his wife, who he was divorcing, had talked about having a relationship with anybody, let alone Travis. 
But once investigation, once Flores talked to her and talked to him, he was like, mm, dead end. On June 16th of 2008, those closest to Travis in Mesa, Arizona, stood up and spoke about their friend in the first of two memorials that would be held for Travis. Front and center of this memorial was Jody. Those who suspected Jody maintained their distance following the service, but some who had yet catch wind that Jody could be at blame stopped and gave her a hug and noted that she was crying and thankful that people were coming out and saying nice things. But another odd thing, there were several times she was smiling inappropriately. We've got questions. These are not, I mean, you're not having an appropriate reaction. People are watching you already. You know they are. They, you know they've been saying your name. And for you to not put on the, the show of a lifetime um, shows failure on your part. At one point, Jody tries to stop and talk with Travis's friend, Taylor. That's his close friend. And when he heard that Travis had been found dead, Mimi, one of Mimi or Michelle or Dustin, called him and was like, you know, Travis is dead. Taylor grabbed his laptop, got in the car, and drove to Travis's house. And when the police got there, he had his laptop and he's like, I want to show you who killed Travis. And on his laptop was a picture of Jody. He has nothing nice to say to Jody. He does not have to be nice to her. He does not have to put up with her crap. And when she tried to stop and talk with him, he walked away. He was unable to scrounge up even an ounce of strength in order to play nice in front of all of the mourners. Jody did leave after signing Travis's memorial book saying, Travis, you are beautiful on the inside and out. You always told me that. I never stopped believing in you. I know you always believed in me. Thank you for sharing so much. This world has been blessed because you have been here. I love you. The next memorial was held in California on June 21st of 2008. This was reserved for close, extremely close friends and family. Travis was laid to rest in Olivewood Memorial Park in Riverside. His headstone reads, In loving memory, of Travis V. Alexander, along with his years 1977 to 2008, and a small oval black and white portrait of Travis with a peaceful smile. This is the smile in the photo that would be the one the world saw most, as the woman who weighed less than a buck thirty would stand trial for the murder of her ex-lover. It's a hauntingly appropriate portrait. Because it's almost as if that smile says, I know who killed me, and I know they're going to get caught. Just after the memorial in Mesa, Detective Flores called Jody and asked if she, along with Mimi Hall, Dallin Forrest, and Michelle Lowry, would come down to the station for an interview. They all went. They all voluntarily gave buccal swaps, which is just inside your cheek. This provided them with DNA samples and fingerprinting. Everyone scheduled a follow-up interview except for Jody. Jody said that after discussing the case with her friend, it would be in her best interest to not talk to them again without speaking with an attorney. She invoked her right to an attorney, which means that shuts down all lines of communication until she signs a form saying to take that back. 
you have that right to an attorney, but once you invoke that, it automatically, which is sad, but it automatically is like, what do you have to hide? And that's exactly how they're looking at her at this point. Everybody's saying her name. Now she's invoked her right to her attorney. What is it that you don't want to accidentally slip up and tell us? There's questions. And Detective Flores, he's hot on Jody's trails. But she was not even aware of how close he actually was to her. Skye and Chris, they're telling Flores about what had gone on in their home, about Jody Strange's behavior, her need to know everything about anything that Travis was doing or saying. Lisa Andrews, Travis's ex-girlfriend, she's telling him about the times that his tires were cut one day right after another. Then she got an email from John Doe and then her tires were cut. Next up is Clancy Talbot. She was um, friends with Travis and she was at the PPL event in Utah where, where Jody had been the very next day following Travis's murder. She says that Jody was acting strange, but what was really weird was her blonde hair was now dark. She wore long sleeves the entire time she was there, even though it was near 100 degrees in temperature, which if you've ever been out to the desert, well, there's no humidity, so it's a dry heat, but it, it'll knock you down faster than you think. And for her to be walking around outside with long sleeves, it's mildly concerning, and I wouldn't have done it. But the most concerning thing that Clancy had to say was Jody's story didn't make sense. She says that she got lost, fell asleep in her car before driving to Ryan Burns' home. There's like 17 hours, no, a little over 24 hours missing. She calls Ryan on the evening of June 3rd, and he doesn't hear from her again till June 5th when she says she's on her way. That is a really long time to be lost and to be sleeping on the side of a road. Most people would put in a couple hours, get up, keep driving. She seemed to have, I don't know, taken some sleeping medication to help with that. Oh, but, you know. This story just doesn't line up, and the more we dig into Jody and what she has to say, and the more what people say she said, the more you're like, how did you think this was going to be normal? This doesn't make any sense at all. On June 19th of 2008, Detective Flores received a call that he had been waiting on. It was the call that would tell him what was on that camera, but most importantly, what was on the memory card. The photos were even timestamped. On June 4th, 2008 at 5:22, Travis is on the screen. It, Travis is on the screen in the master shower. His hell, his head is tilted up and the water is splashing down on his face. Followed by about 9 more photos of him in the shower in various poses. The last timestamped at 5:29 is him with a stern look into the camera lens. At 5.30, he's sitting in the shower floor, and the right side of him is exposed, and this is the last photo of Travis alive. The next photo was 44 seconds later, and the image was out of focus and taken from the floor looking up. At 5.32, just 62 seconds following that, 
A photo is enhanced and it shows the back of Travis's head with blood dripping down his arm consistent with the neck wound that he suffered. And someone is standing in front of his body. This person's right pant leg and foot is visible in this photo. They're wearing a dark colored sock or shoe with a striped sweatpants that has a zipper that goes down the back of the cuff. The pants were either dark blue or black. This photo was taken at the northern end of the bathroom hall where the largest blood stain was found at the scene. Another photo was taken with the camera upside down and it was a close-up of the bathroom hallway and the baseboards. And it appeared as if there was a body being lifted or dragged in that area. These photos are damning. Like Flores was able to see the crime play out through these burst-like images. But the ones timestamped before the murder were going to be far more damning. <clears throat> At 1.42 on June 4th, Jody Aris's photo was on the screen. It's a bit blurry, but there's no mistaking who was in front of that camera. She was nude, propped up on her elbows, and her hair is braided into pigtails. In another one, she's on her back with her head turned to the side. And these are extreme close-ups of what God gave her. Her anus and vagina are in the forefront of these photos. At 1.44, the photo, there is a photo of Travis naked lying on his back in the bed next to a small bottle of KY jelly. Most of his face is blocked by his right arm. At 1.47, Travis is glancing at the camera and his hand gestures with two fingers to indicate the peace sign. So in total, we have four photos of Jody before the murder and only two of Travis. Jody had already told Detective Flores at this point that the last time she had seen Travis was in early April. Jody was lying. On June 21st, Jody called Detective Flores yet again, this time leaving in a message, and Flores would call her back on Monday. She wanted to know if there had been an update on the case. Of course, there's nothing that he could say or share with her at that time because it was an open investigation. But with each phone call she was making and wanting to know what was going on, the brighter the limelight of suspicion grew on her. The biggest reason to call was she was now willing to talk and asking for a lawyer may have been the wrong choice. So they set up a phone interview for June 25th. Flores calls Jody for the scheduled interview and they, at this point, he knows she's been lying about her whereabouts. After the phone call, Flores freshens up his math skills a little bit by calculating the drive from L.A. to Mesa, then to Salt Lake City. Then the math that added up from L.A. straight to Salt Lake City was 48 hours. The drive from L.A. to Mesa to Salt Lake allowed for 11 hours for Jody to spend with Travis, even though she's saying, you know, I didn't go to Mesa. I don't know what she's talking about. Jody's phone went off and her whereabouts are completely unknown for 27 hours. The next call she makes after turning her phone on June 4th at 11.20 p.m., the signal bounces off of a tower along I-93 
in a small town about 200 miles outside of Mesa, Arizona. Jody's movements were weird, and they didn't align with this story. Without the photos, this made her look suspicious. With the photos, it put Jody within a few hours of Travis shortly after his murder. On June 26, Flores got a call. They've been able to match a bloody print on the bathroom wall, and it's of Jody Aris's left palm. So now we have pictures putting her there, and now a palm print. On July 1st, Jody had decided she was moving, possibly to Monterey. She booked a car, a rental car, and then she did something really suspicious. She went out and she bought a 9mm gun. Had she not had anything to hide or had people not consistently been saying her name, this may not have been a suspicious thing. But we, we want to know, you know, we question what she needed this gun for. I don't know. On June 3rd, DNA typing has come back now, and they're telling Detective Flores, we have a left palm print, we have photos, we have Jody's DNA. It's mixed in with the blood of Travis's. This case went from being almost entirely circumstantial to completely obtaining cold, hard evidence. The person that killed Travis Alexander was his ex, Jody Arias. On July 14, 2008, two county sheriff officers were sitting on out in front of Jody's grandparents' home watching her. They're waiting for Flores and his partner, Tom Denning, to get there so they can serve Jody with her arrest warrant for first-degree murder charge in the death of Travis Alexander. At 9.45 p.m., county sheriff officers visually see Sandra, Jody's mother, pull into the driveway. Jody goes out, gets into the passenger seat, and after a few moments, she gets back out and goes back into the home, and Sandra leaves. Detective Flores, upon arrival to Wairika, learns about a break-in that was reported by Jody's grandparents on May 28th, just prior to Travis's murder. The missing, a 25 caliber gun. Coincidentally, the same caliber that was used to shoot Travis. The burglary of Jody's parents' home was going to cover for her arrest right now. They weren't going to snag her at the home and arrest her for the murder of, of Travis. They were going to arrest her at the home under the suspicion of the burglary at her grandparents. So on July 15th of 2008 at 6.30 in the morning, the detectives from Mesa and Wairika knock on the door and ask to speak with Jody. When she steps out onto the front porch, she is placed immediately under arrest and was Mirandized. She was asked if she could grab her purse so she could get her makeup. Obviously, she was denied her makeup and placed in the back of a police cruiser. Once she was under arrest, two warrants were served, one on her grandparents' home and one on her parents' home. Two knives were seized and to be tested. A box labeled for 25 caliber shells was found inside the home, but the bullets located inside were for a 22. A receipt for a 9mm was found, which was purchased on July 1st, and she took possession of on July 11th after the mandatory 10-day background check. There was a receipt for a rental car from Budget in Reading from June 2nd to July 7th. 
multiple receipts documenting her trip from Cali to Arizona and into Utah, CDs, DVDs, two USB drives, three laptops, and a hard drive was seized. The 9mm was never located on the initial search. However, when her Cobalt rental car was returned to the, to the agency she rented it from and was going to use to move with, they had located the missing 9mm inside the car and police took custody of that. Jody sat in a tiny interrogation room in a blue short sleeve shirt and white pants and Detective Flores sits across from her. And they are about to embark on one of the most infamous interrogations um, out there. You can get online. You can watch this if you really want to. It's very wild. I will tell you, you got to get like 45 minutes into the interrogation before you start getting anywhere worth a damn. But, you know, first off, Jody's in this room. She's cold. You can tell she's cold because she's like tucking herself together but it's almost as if that's her way to protect herself as well and when detective flores finally comes in and he sits down she asks him you know should we record this and he's like what and she reaches behind her and there's this table or like end table kind of thing and she pulls two recording devices from the table and she tells him you know maybe we should record this i don't know how these work but they fiddle with them for a minute, figure out they're not set up to record. She puts them back and they start kind of talking. She goes on with her story that she was nowhere close to Travis's home on the night he was killed. She Then she tells a tall tale of how she got stranded and ended up taking a detour that pushed her 100 miles in the wrong direction from where she was trying to go. But then the very patient Detective Flores decides to show her something he found on the memory card. He pulls out a photo, and it's of Jody, naked, in Travis's bed, and she asks him, point blank, are you sure it's me? I wasn't even there. But there it is, time-stamped with June 4th at 1.42. It's Jody, plain as day, naked as a jaybird. There's no denying that's her in her photograph, but she leans over and inspects this photograph as though he's trying to pass off like a, a Photoshop of her. And she's like, well, it looks like me, but I wasn't there. And, and Detective Flores, I mean, he, remain, he remains patient throughout this whole thing because I would have been like, are you freaking kidding me? Look, that is you, you know? <laughs> anyway, she goes on, the, the interrogation goes on, she goes on denying she was there, she, she denies guilt, and when they get to talking about this small caliber gun used, she denies even knowing that her grandfather had a gun until it was reported stolen, even saying that her grandfather told her it looked like a toy gun. But then she breaks down and she says, if I'm found guilty, I don't have a life. And this is in response to Detective Flores saying, you know, you're worried about your reputation, but you should really be worried about saving your own life because she is more concerned with the fact that people keep bringing her name up as a possible suspect than she is with the fact that they may actually be onto her. Photo after photo is shown to Jody, and with each one, she either claims it's not her or she wasn't there. 
even the one where it's like the footprint that I was telling you about, the photo where you can see Travis injured blood and there's that footprint or there's that foot inside the frame. And she says, and I kid you not, she says, I didn't bring those pants on that trip when shown a photo of this. And I'm thinking, those pants and that trip, like, girl, could you have just not put yourself in that? Come on, really? But anyways, she, you know, they go back and forth. That's not my foot. I didn't do that. You know, that wasn't her in the pictures. You know, those are not her her body parts located in the pictures of Travis being murdered. That wasn't her in those pictures to asking if she was as good as done with regards to evidence following. I mean, once she sees all this, she's she says, you know, I'm as good as done with all your evidence, right? And Detective Flores says, yeah. But before she is taken in and booked, he gives her a moment and he leaves the interrogation room and this is when this crazy woman, she starts to sing a couple different songs, one of them being Oh Holy Night. And then she puts herself into a headstand up against a wall, bracing herself before Detective Flores can come back in, place her under arrest. Once she is under arrest, she again asks if she can have her purse and go clean herself up a bit. No, you really can't go get pretty for your mugshot. I'm sorry. This is not normal behavior of a person fixing to go down for a murder. If she's adamant that she didn't commit this, I get that a, you know, an innocent person won't act guilty. But this is so far-fetched from not acting guilty. I'm not really sure what this is. Once she is booked in, she does get her phone call to her parents. And another inmate that is, is in the same area as Jody after her booking, she says that she overheard Jody asking her mom, what comes up when you Google my name? She is more concerned about her name, her reputation, all of that with then the fact that she they have refutable, I mean, irrefutable evidence uh, of Jody being in that home during the time that Travis was murdered. They've got photos, they've got timestamps, they've got DNA, they've got fingerprints, they've got her. She's there. She did this. No matter what story she feeds us, it doesn't line up. But Jody, she's curious to know what people are saying about her. On July 16th of 2008, Jody agrees to talk with Flores again. This time, she says she had no plans of seeing Travis during this trip, but Travis called her when she was in LA and begged her to come and see him. And she says at first she told him no, but then he persuaded her into coming. And she said she went because she missed him. She says she arrived early in the morning and went up to his room uh, the morning of June 4th. His roommates never knew she was there, but this is something they had done time and time again when she did live in Mesa and he would send her the I'm tired, you know, code word and she would sneak in and up to his room. 
So her getting into the home and getting to his bedroom without nobody noticing, it's, you know, not out of the ordinary. She says that then Travis went downstairs, talked to his roommates before they went back. They went to work. He came back up to bed and the two went to sleep till about 1 p.m. that afternoon. After waking, she and Travis had sex. Afterwards, Travis got out his new camera and asked her to pose nude on his bed for him. She spread her legs, and then he, she took a couple photos of Travis, supposedly making a video as well before deleting it. And I think Flora steps in at this moment, and he says something along the lines of, photos are easier to recover than video, but I don't know. I can't. I don't recall, and so I'm not going to let you hold me to that. <laughs> she said that she had brought a couple CDs with her so they could look at pictures from their trips that they had taken together. But due to a virus being on his computer, they were unable to do so, and this frustrated both of them. And then they had sex a second time in his office before they went back upstairs around 5 o'clock. She convinced Travis to let her take photos of him in the shower, saying it would be very modely GQ kind of style. And he was hesitant at first. But the last two photos of Travis sitting in the shower were right before a loud bang went off. And she was thrown over across the bathroom over by the tub and the camera slid across the tile. And when she looked up, Travis was bleeding. She says there was two tall strangers standing over her and Travis wearing a ski mask, gloves, long black shirts. One was holding a gun, and that was the guy, and then there was the girl. And Travis is screaming in pain, and she decides she's going to get up and she's going to run. And she got to the closet just before the man grabbed her. She said the woman had been holding a knife, and when they got back into the bathroom after she had tried to run, Travis was bleeding. Jody, fueled by adrenaline, she ran down the bathroom hall and pushed into the woman, knocking her off of her feet, and she tried to drag Travis to safety. The man and woman screamed at one another. Somehow, during all of this, she ends up cutting her fingers. She said the woman wanted to kill her, but the man didn't. The man grabbed Jody's purse, pulled out her driver's license, and called her the bitch from California. She says that the man told her that if she was to say anything to anyone, police, family, friends, they would find her family and they would kill her the same, kill them the same way and then her. Jody says she then grabs her purse and she leaves. Travis was still alive when she left the home and that's all she really knew. Well, after hearing this very far-fetched story, Detective Flores flat out tells her, I don't believe you. What's the motive for these two people? And Jody, she doesn't have one. She's like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Jody does tell Detective Flores, you know, I feel guilty because I should have done more. There should have been something more I could have done. And that's why I feel guilty. And Flores, he straight calls her out. You know, he says, no, Jody, I think you feel guilty because you did this. And Jody's, no, it wasn't me. It was these two intruders. And he's like, no, your story's not acting up. And she, so she turns the table. She's like, well, what's my motive? 
well, hell, let's tick that shit off for her real quick, right? Jealousy, anger, fear, fear of being alone, angry at him for not keeping her in his life. The fact that he was talking to another woman. The fact that he was taking another woman with him on a trip. The fact that Travis told Jody he thought Mimi was the one for him. I mean, this list is virtually endless. Really, it is. She wants a motive. I mean, we can write them out, throw them up on the wall, throw a dart, and we'll find one. I mean, they all fit. Jody remained in custody in California as she was fighting extradition back to Arizona. However, on July 24th of 2008, Jody was transported to Maricopa County to face first-degree murder charges for Travis Alexander. It did not take long before Travis's family and friends caught wind of Jody's arrest. No one was surprised, but they were all shaken. How could this girl who spoke so loving of their friend, who had been in a few of their homes and a small part of their lives, been capable of taking their friend away from them? Jody went through several public defenders as she tried to put off the trial as much as possible so she could make sure all of her ducks were in a perfect row. But eventually she found one she liked, Lawrence Kirk Nurmi, the courtroom foe of Juan Martinez, who had been appointed to her case as the prosecutor. On September 11th of 2008, the once blonde stood next to her public defender and was arraigned on the charge of first-degree murder, to which she pled not guilty. Her bond was set at $2 million, astronomically high for her family to come up with, and they wouldn't be able to because when, you are, when you're out on bond for first-degree, it's not 10%. It's not 20%. It is the entire bond. They would have to sell everything they own and still take loans in order to make this bail. It's not worth it. Jody would remain behind bars until her trial. Well, once she got to Maricopa County, she started feeling a little, little sad for herself. And she fell into depression after the arraignment, and she, she claimed she contemplated suicide. She ended up stockpiling Advil, and she was hoping that if she took enough of it, it would prevent her blood from clotting, okay? The day that she decided she was going to do this, she asked for some extra laundry. She stuffed that around her on her bunk as she had the top bunk, and she really didn't want her blood oozing down on her bunkmate below. She pulled the blade out of a razor, and she ended, up, she ended up nicking her finger with it, and she says that that was so painful that she could never actually go through with actually cutting her wrist. In February of 2010, Travis's home was foreclosed on, and it was sold at auction, and new owners moved in. Somebody currently, I believe, is living in the home. Um, so please don't, don't stalk the home there. These people have nothing to do with it. Just FYI, stay away. Don't touch it. Jody's trial was set for, set to go in front of Sup Superior Court Judge Sherry K. Stevens, her courtroom, February of 2010. However, this case would get delayed, delayed, and delayed for five years. Jody and her attorneys threw together a plea deal, and she says that she would plead guilty to second-degree murder in exchange for a sentence. I, I mean, it's not clear what that sentence was. 
Um, but Juan Martinez, he was unfazed. He didn't even respond. He knew his first degree murder charge, that case, was so strong. No, I mean, you you could be virtually just a warm body on there and you'd still vote guilty. That's how bad this is. Once Juan Martinez kind of dejected that first plea, Jody needed to put together something quick that would justify what she did to him. So the first thing she did, she tagged Travis as a pedophile, saying his computer had numerous amounts of young boy pornography. She said he was abusive. She said the sky was purple. The ground swallowed him up, spit him back out that way with all of those wounds. Anything she could to make her look like the victim in the end. On Ju in July of 2011, another plea for second-degree murder was submitted under the pretense that the trial would reveal to Travis's family and his friends his true nature, being demeaning, degrading, and abusive, and that these secrets being revealed in that kind of manner would cause further pain for his loved ones. Again, the plea bargain was rejected. In August of 2011, Martinez was at Estrella Jail taking a deposition on another case when he noticed Jody sitting in the visitation room with a heavy set woman. She was passing two magazines. These magazines were checked by a guard before passing to the visitor. And this is kind of odd, right? What does a person who is free need with magazines coming from inside of a jailhouse. So he kind of kept an eye on what Dodie was doing, and when the visitation was over, he asked for the magazines. The lady visiting Dodie left quickly and without the magazines. Juan called his assistant, and he he told her, you know, I need I need a warrant. I've got two magazines down here. I need to know what they say. And he was granted. And when he was granted that warrant, he sat down. In tiny pencil markings in the photography magazine of Digital Photo Pro, he finds on page 20, you testify so. On page 37, we can fix this. On page 40, directly contradicts what I've been saying for over a year. There was the second magazine, The Star, and when he looked up the corresponding numbers of 43, 40, 56, 20, 37, and 54, he was able to decipher the message Jody was trying to pass along. It said, quote, you fucked up. What you told my attorney the next day directly contradicts what I've been saying for over a year. Get down here ASAP. See me before you talk to them again and before you testify so we can fix this. Interview was excellent. Must talk ASAP. So not only was Jody a pain in the ass to deal with as a defendant, she was a pain in the ass as an inmate. I mean, people were wanting to talk to the scorn lover turned violent murderer. And she held several different press conferences while locked up. Just FYI. But this message showed that she was soliciting false testimony, calling to action of someone to commit perjury. The intended recipient, none other than Matthew McCartney, who had spoken to Jody's attorney about verifying letters that had mysteriously been submitted that claimed that 
Travis was a pedophile. Matt failed to back up Jody's claims of him being a pedophile. This was being like, you're going to tell him what I say to tell him. But it never occurred. It never happened. And on August 8th of 2011, Jody sat at the table with Nermi and Washington, who had been currently appointed to assist, when she stood up and told the court, I'd like to represent myself. She has no experience. She has no license. She barely understands the charges that she's charged with. All this manages to do is cause yet another delay. On December 6th, Victoria Washington, the assist, filed for motion to be withdrawn from the case. She was granted that motion six days later. Kirk Nermi filed numerous motions asking for the same thing. But I, I guess because Jody had gone through 87 different public defenders. No, that, I, that don't take me at that number. She had gone through several um, public defenders. I think the court was done. They were like, let's just, if there's no rhyme or reason, let's not do it anymore. I'm done. And if the assist bows out, that's not a big deal. Because we still have the lead, Kirk Nermy. Well, he was never let out of that contract with that public mm, he if you don't know this case then uh it doesn't take you long to figure out that her defense attorney hated her with passion he did not want to represent her she did not want to play ball the same way he did and all this was going to do was just cause a lot of backlash in his direction and I don't blame him. On January of 2012, Jennifer Wilmot was assigned to the assist with Jody's case. With the letters of pedophilia and sexual deviance not working, her defense had to switch gears. And I would say this would be in being led by Jody. I can't see Kirk Nomi going, well, that one didn't work. Let's try this. He doesn't seem like that type of an attorney. This time, her story was, Travis became angry when she dropped his camera. And the story switches again. On December 14th of 2012, nearly four and a half years after Travis's murder, the Alexander family suffered another loss. Norma, Mumum, Sarvi passed away at the age of 80. She never saw justice be brought for her grandson. On January 2nd of 2013, the woman who flipped a switch and became a deranged killer stood in a courtroom in front of Judge Sherry K. Stevens in the case of the state of Arizona versus Jody Ann Arias. On one side was Juan Martinez with Detective Esteban Flores, and on the other was Kirk Nermy, Jody Arias, and, a, and Jennifer Wilmont. The blonde exotic bombshell that those remember being in Travis's life and taking it violently was no more. Instead, there was a dark-haired girl with wispy bangs, round frames, and a frail frame hidden behind a baggy black blouse and gray slacks. She had transformed in the four, nearly five years since they had all saw her last. She hid her face with some of the photos shown to the court, wiped away tears. She was going to play the remorseful yet scorned ex-lover. 
Juan Martinez, he was vicious and he was quick to prove his point, taking only nine days to show his open and shut case. He started with Mimi Hall and he, she was followed by officers, by detectives, by medical examiners, by Ryan Burns, by any of her exes, and all of the solid evidence captured and bagged at the scene. The defense, they had a different strategy. That's an interesting one. On day 13 of the trial, Kirk Nurmi shocked the world watching because we were able to watch this moment for moment. It was televised. When he called to the stand, Jody and Arias. This is a rare moment in true crime. Most defendants have the right to represent themselves and take the stand. Many choose to stay silent. It's a smart choice. Jody was not going to allow that to happen. First question out of Kirk Nurmi's mouth was, did you kill Travis Alexander on June 4th, 2008? She answered with a resounding yes. The simple answer, he attacked her and she had defended herself. On day four, Jody began talking about the couple's sex life, possessively labeled clothing, boy underwear with Spider-Man decorating them that she was asked to wear, and their first vaginal sexual intercourse happening in 2007, followed by her reading the text messages indicating that he was cheating on her. On day five came the culture shock of the century. A phone call was taped between Jody and Travis with explicit detail. You can hear Travis echoing through the courtroom. I'm going to tie you to a tree and put it in your ass all the way. I can't help but cringe at this because, for one, her family is sitting right behind the defense table in the spectator section. And for those who didn't know Travis like this behind closed doors, they're listening to this overly descriptive conversation. It is uncomfortable no matter where you are in this case. I heard it and I went, oh, this is not good. You can hear Jody squeal say, oh my gosh, that's so debasing. I like it. They spoke of the sex they had had in the bathtub. They spoke about his sexual stamina. And they spoke about Travis making Jody feel like a goddess. They both continued to moan during this recording as they were engaging in masturbation on each side. Jody even wished out loud that it was her hands giving him the hand job he was left to do by himself. Travis reveals his fantasy of filming them in the act, and Jody moans out in a climax through the audio recording in the courtroom. Jody has her face at this point buried because the next statement will make you drop your drop. Travis says, The way you moan. It sounds like you're a 12-year-old girl having her first orgasm. It's so hot. Jody claims that she taped their sex talks like this at the request of Travis. True? Possibly. False? Probably. In any way, whatever the reason was for the recording of this phone conversation, it's... Oh my gosh. It's going to show deviance. Is it out of the norm uh, in today's society? No. Was it out of the norm in 2008? No. The only difference is 
I don't think it's paraded in front of the world. I mean, you you look at this case, and this was highly sexualized. These two broke the law of chastity. These two engaged in activity they shouldn't have been because neither one of them were married to each other. There was this whole vow that they had and they they tried to live the rest of their life like. But when it came down to this action, they couldn't quit it. It's, does this show that they, you know, there's a lot of debate here. But when you peel back all the layers of this, it comes down to one thing. They had a, a overly strong sexual relationship. And that kind of endorphin rush is addictive. And these, Travis never had this kind of relationship. It didn't seem like with anybody else he had ever dated. So for Jody to be very willing to let things like this happen... He developed an addiction, and if you want to compare it to, like, heroin or, you know, prescription narcotics or whatever, he had this addiction, and he had a really hard time beating it. And Jody, her addiction was the ultimate desire to be Travis's girl. And if that meant that she let him take up-close personal photos of her genitals... Okay, if that means sticking in it in her house, okay, she's going to do it. She would do anything it took to hold on to Travis. She fell hook, line, and sinker for this man. And so her addiction lied in being with Travis. And, it, and Travis's addiction, well, she had a willing participant to let him do whatever he wanted to in the bedroom. If you, I mean, you just got to peel back the layers and this is the foundation of them. And that's, I think, the thing that was so appealing about this case and about this trial is these things go on, yes, but they are not sensationalized in the manner that this was. So, there's deviance in both of them. After seven days of testimony about her pre-life, Travis and her pre-Travis and her life with Travis, she began to talk about what led up to the murder. Juan Martinez said of the prosecution's table, and he took notes for every day she was on that stand, and, and Kirk Nurmi was there to question her. He's taking notes. He's got questions popping up left and right, and he, you know, she's she talked for 10 days. Then he stood up and he questioned her in a cross-examination for five additional days on all of those questions, comments, and clarifications he needed that he wrote down for 10 days. That's 15 days we saw the defendant on the stand, but we're not done. In the final three days of, of her 18-day stint on, in the stand, the jury was now able to ask direct questions of her, most of which she would answer with, I don't remember. <laughs> Even one of the jury members, and you don't get to know who asked what. One of the jury members did ask her if she'd seen anybody regarding her memory loss. And I found that quite funny. 
because, I mean, she could remember very explicit details between her and Travis and, and their sexual activities, but, like, they asked her, why were you angry that day? And she's like, I don't remember. You don't remember why you were angry and what led you to kill him, but you can remember the sexual intercourse you had just a year before? Like, two and two is not equal and four here. So I thought it was quite funny that one of the questions was asking her if she had seeked medical attention for her memory loss. On May 2nd of 2013, four months is how long we saw this trial go on before hearing closing arguments. And the world watched. We ate it up each and every day. We were like greedy, sugar-starved diabetics when it came to this case. We were there from the moment news broke about Jody being arrested for Travis's murder in the vicious way that he died. And we saw it through until we had a verdict. And, you know, it, it made a great story and it continues to make a great story. Those, out, those of you out there that have never heard this case, it is fascinating to see you hear it for the first time in my True Crime Nerds and I love it. Um, because it was so big and it still is. This is when you become a true crime podcaster, you have a rite of passage to, to certain cases. And those are those big named ones. I mean, a lot of people want the unknown cases, the ones nobody's ever covered. But as a host, you can't help but be like, I've earned my right to talk about some of these others. And I'm trying to litter in between my big cases, some unknown cases, but this season two has been just chock full of some big names, and this was one of them. But I, I had to talk about this because there had to be more to the story than what the world got to see, and I feel like I've uncovered a lot of information that a lot of people don't talk about. On May 8th of 2013, the jury deliberated for less than three days, a total of 15 hours before they came back with a verdict. When the jury was polled, five members found her guilty of premeditated murder only. Seven found her guilty of both premeditation and felony murder. Either way, didn't matter. She was found guilty of first-degree murder. Travis's friends and family had closure. They cried. They let out a sigh of relief, and the crowd that had gathered outside this courtroom and turned this into a circus event, they cheered because Jody Ares had fooled no one. Jody's sentencing hearing would go over just like the trial had. There would be a mistrial as jurors could not come together and make a unanimous decision on what should happen with the mousy defendant. The state could either accept the term of life or convene a new sentencing trial and go for the death sentence. Juan Martinez was willing to wait. Jody Ann Arias was finally sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole on April 13th of 2015, nearly seven years after the murder of Travis Victor Alexander. Many watching this case unfold in real time hope for the death penalty for the obvious manipulator that was Jody Arias. But life could provide an alternative punishment. Not living life 
knowing what she did and the pain she caused, but not being able to escape her tarnished reputation. In 2020, Jody appealed her sentencing, claiming that partly because of the trial's publicity, including the live media coverage, and the prosecutor's alleged misconduct deprived her of a fair trial and an impartial jury. Her conviction was upheld. Juan Martinez was let go from Maricopa County for allegedly leaking the names of the jurors to a blogger. This led to his disbarment. Kirk Nurmi, he's been disbarred as well, following his tell-all book of what it was like to represent Jody Arias. For him, this was the only way he would be free from ever having to represent her again in the future. With each breaking headline in this case, we, the world, tunes in to see what Jody has up her sleeve. Jody sits behind bars to this day with the sentence of never seeing the free world again. But you know what they say, never say never. Travis's dirty little secrets was yanked from his closet for the world to see and all by the exotic beauty that he just had to meet. Those close to Travis, those who loved Travis, didn't let what Jody had to share tarnish their memory of him. Instead, they lived their lives the way he did. As always, I leave you with one last line. The meaning of life is to find your gift. The purpose of life is to give it away. Much love, the true crime librarian.